Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. As we continue to make our way through this coronavirus pandemic, one of the most important developments happened this week. A government-run study of Gilead Science's antiviral drug Remdesivir has shown that the medicine is an effective treatment for COVID-19. The study achieved its primary goal, which was to improve time to recovery, which was reduced by four days for those on the drug. The FDA is expected to grant emergency approval for this drug. To talk more about remdesivir, we'll speak to Adam Feuerstein, reporter at Stat News. It was a pretty monumental day for COVID-19 and for this drug remdesivir today. Like you said, this is a government-run study. The study was actually run by the agency that is overseen by Tony Fauci, and most people know Tony Fauci now is like the COVID-19 guy on TV all the time. So his agency ran this very large clinical trial. There was a placebo control, which basically was looking at using remdesivir to treat COVID-19 patients who were in the hospital. And as you said, the study was positive and it found essentially that patients who took remdesivir recovered faster than similar patients who were treated with a placebo. On average, like basically four days faster they recovered. So that's really a very significant, meaningful benefit. As you can imagine, if you can get treated with a drug, get out of the hospital faster, maybe you avoid going into the ICU and all of the sort of complications that go around with that. That's a meaningful benefit for people who are suffering from this terrible disease. And that was the primary goal, to see if it could improve the time to recovery, not necessarily eliminated or anything like that. It's just let's help people so they don't go into either more severe symptoms or these extended hospital stays. And Dr. Fauci has already said there's clear-cut evidence that this works. The FDA might approve emergency use of this. I mean, they did that with hydroxychloroquine before any real studies had been completed on that. So everybody thinks that this is going to get fast-tracked right away. Tell us a little bit about how the study was done. I think you made a good point in that this is kind of a first step. This is a drug that is going to help people who are in the hospital. It's not going to cure all the patients. It's not a cure for COVID-19. What we've desperately needed are effective drugs that can help treat the disease. And so this drug is kind of a first step in that process. And the reason that people are feeling really good today is because this study that was done by the government was a very large study. It had over a thousand patients in it. It was a placebo-controlled study. So some of the patients were given remdesivir, some of the patients were given placebo. That is sort of the gold standard, the most rigorously designed clinical trial. So when we see all the full results, and we've kind of gotten a snapshot of the results today, but I think this will lend confidence to the fact that this drug is effective. And the improvement that they said, because that's what they said, that it achieved its goal of helping to improve the time of recovery. How did they measure the improvement since everybody's symptoms and the way they experience COVID-19 is a little bit different? The end point or the main goal of the study was time to clinical improvement, and that they used basically a scale. Basically, every day they assessed patients to see their condition, and there were various different things that they looked at. Hospital discharge, they looked at the use of oxygen. There are various different measures that they used in the study to assess or to sort of grade clinical improvement for remdesivir versus the placebo. And remdesivir, a little bit more about that. It's an antiviral medication that they tried to use it to treat Ebola. The other drug everybody had heard a lot of was hydroxychloroquine, and that had some side effects that would hit people's hearts. Did remdesivir have any side effects that patients were experiencing? 
We haven't seen all the details yet, but generally from what's been released so far today, the side effect profile of remdesivir looks actually pretty clear. There haven't been any significant side effects or toxicities associated with the drug. And like you said, the drug has been around for a while. One of the reasons why Gilead, the maker of the drug, was able to move so quickly into these large clinical trials is because the drug has been around for years. It has been studied in other viral outbreaks. You mentioned Ebola, which is one of the diseases that it was tested at years ago. So the drug had been used in patients previously. So because of that, they were able to kind of move pretty quickly into these large clinical trials because they already had a pretty decent-sized safety database so that they were confident that giving this drug to COVID-19 patients, it wasn't going to harm them. And what does the treatment with remdesivir look like? I had seen some stuff about a five-day treatment or 10-day treatment. I think it might have been two different studies that were looking at this. But what do they think the treatment course is going to look like if somebody is being treated with remdesivir? That's a good point. And I think it's important because when we think medicines, people oftentimes think of you can take a pill and you'll feel better. This is a drug that's given intravenously, so it's going to be given in the hospital. This is not going to be used for like every patient who has maybe even just mild COVID-19. This is a drug that will probably be used for patients who have more moderate to severe disease who are in the hospital because it has to be given over a course of many days by intravenous infusion. Whether it's given for five days or 10 days, that's been looked at both. There was another study that came out today that basically showed that whether you give it for five days or 10 days, the outcome is basically the same. But still, it has to be given over multiple days and it will be given in the hospital. So this is the first thing that people are really excited about. I know people got really excited about hydroxychloroquine, but the studies just weren't done yet. We didn't have all the information. That's why everybody was urging caution, guys like Dr. Fauci. But this is the first thing that people are really excited about. I think the distinction between something like hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir is that there was sort of this rush to use hydroxychloroquine based on anecdotal evidence. The studies really hadn't been done yet. There were some reports of maybe patients benefiting And so the drug was kind of thrown out there and people were using it. This is a little bit different in that there have been these clinical trials that have done. So the recommendation to use this drug, if it is done, would be based on the scientific data that comes out of these studies. Well, all good news for now. And hopefully we can keep on this path of improving and finding more effective treatments. Adam Feuerstein, reporter at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure being on. Thank you. And as we learn more about COVID-19 and the way it affects people, doctors are seeing a second-week crash in patients who suffer the most severe reactions to the coronavirus. Doctors still don't know why the fifth through the tenth days seem to be so dangerous for some, but they suspect overactive immune responses, blood clotting, or even the impact of ventilators. For more on the scary second week, we'll speak to Lenny Bernstein. He's the health and medicine reporter for The Washington Post. This really is a novel coronavirus. It's new. We thought we knew a good bit about it because it's very much like other coronaviruses, like the one that causes colds. But it turns out that there are a lot of things to this virus that were not apparent when this pandemic started four months ago or got to the United States two months ago. One of the things that doctors started seeing right away and started to tell each other that they needed to guard against was that about halfway through the course of symptoms, people suddenly went critical. And in the beginning, you had doctors who had people in the ICU or other parts of the hospital, and they were saying to themselves, got this person through the first week. That's great, because with most diseases, you get through the first week, you get more stable, you start to turn upwards in your trajectory. This is one of those diseases where people can suddenly just start gasping for air, start choking, 
start feeling like they can't breathe and go downhill quite rapidly in that time period that you mentioned. And so why do doctors think this is happening? I know there's always this big thing of underlying health conditions and that can make things worse. We've talked about the immune system and how it can go overboard and start destroying selfie health and make things worse. What are doctors thinking that might be the cause for this second week crash? So unfortunately, nobody knows. There are a number of theories, and that's what our story was about. One of the big ones is what you just mentioned, the cytokine storm. A virus invades the lungs. The body sends out its army of antibodies and other cells to attack this virus. And in some people, for reasons we don't really know why, their bodies don't turn off that response when they should, and they end up with an over-response, a hyperdrive response of their own immune system. And that causes more inflammation and makes the lungs much worse. But that's only one theory. Some people think that the virus is actually destroying the cells on the insides of the little air sacs of your lungs, and that it takes three or four weeks to regenerate those, but right around five or 10 days is when you reach a critical point and enough of them have gone away that you start to be unable to breathe. They're finding microclots in people's lungs and other parts of the body, other parts of the cardiovascular system. They're not 100% sure whether those clots might not have something to do with it. And then there's the way we use these ventilators. Traditional therapy for someone who comes in and they can't breathe and their lungs are full of gunk is if they're bad enough, we put them on a ventilator. That's, as I'm sure everybody's heard by now, they sedate them and then they put a 10-inch tube down into their breathing passages. Well, there are some doctors who are thinking that may actually make things worse with certain kinds of people who already are hypoxic. Unfortunately, we don't know. And one day the research will be done and we'll have a better grip on this. But right now we don't. With the ventilator specifically, there's a few interesting things there. They think that it might be because you're putting a little too much pressure on the lungs and it can produce more of the inflammatory response to the virus. And then beyond that, you know, some hospitals are saying, well, let's wait a little bit before we put somebody on a ventilator. And they're using kind of this technique. It's called proning, basically just putting patients on their stomachs for as much as 16 hours a day in some cases. But all of this kind of helps to maybe not use the ventilator so much. But this is all kind of developing as we're learning more about it. I do like to talk about proning when we can, because it's one of those low-tech silver linings that doctors are beginning to use more and more. Think about watching medical shows on TV. They're always on their back, right? Because the doctors have to be able to get to them and tend to their needs. So you want them face up. But doctors and others are turning these people on their stomachs. Like you said, as much as 16 hours a day and taking pressure off their lungs, pressure off their hearts, and they're finding that it does improve people. So I like that story. I like to hear that because it's one of the few silver linings that we've found. The ventilator, it's a great machine. It saves lives. It has saved countless lives. But imagine somebody comes in and they're gasping for air and they can't breathe at all. And they have that look of panic in their eyes. And you're going to turn to them and say, you know what? We're not going to put you on the vent because we want to see if not putting you on the vent works out first. Boy, that's a tough decision. Who wants to be the doctor who has to make that decision? Right. These are people, obviously, that are experiencing the most severe symptoms of this. The good news is that the majority of people that get COVID-19 don't require this hospitalization. I think they said about 10% of the 1 million known cases so far require hospitalization. And beyond that, smaller percentages require intensive care or the ventilators themselves or experience really rapid deterioration of the health. But this still cause for concern for the people that do get ill this second week. You know, as you mentioned, 
you're naturally inclined to think that first week you're over it and we're smooth sailing now. But that's why it's good news that we are getting some good news out of this remdesivir. And this kind of reduces the time to recovery. So we're starting to get the hang of it. We're starting to figure this thing out. And these are all good things to know. We are tossing everything that makes any sense at all at this disease because it's a pandemic. People are dying, you know, 2,500 a day. So yeah, if remdesivir cuts the time in the hospital from 15 to 11 for some people, that's good news that you want people out of the hospital, back home, not lying on their back, getting pneumonia. So that's great. Anything else that we can toss at this thing that doctors with their sort of ingenuity at this can toss at this thing is a blessing. But the problem is that the numbers are still very high. And when you get to places that individually are overwhelmed with patients, take some of those hospitals in Brooklyn and Queens during the height of the pandemic in New York, they're just going as fast as they can trying to keep people alive. There wasn't a lot of time to sort of work out new ways of doing things. Now, I talked to a guy uh, out there near you at UCLA who said, look, we've got a manageable flow of patients. And that allows us to be much more hands-on and spend a lot more time with each patient. And that's what we need. We're trying to buy our health system time, as much time as possible. So if, God forbid, you or I find ourselves in one of those hospitals, we've got doctors and nurses who can spend as much time as they need trying to treat us. Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Another big story to watch out for, the coronavirus pandemic has thrown American universities for a loop in trying to figure out how to open effectively and provide students with a learning experience on par with what they'll be paying for. On the one hand, you have students unsure if they want to incur massive debt just to attend online classes. On the other hand, colleges are in danger due to lost revenue from athletics, room and board, and tuition. For more on the tough decisions for both students and universities, we'll speak to Erica Pandy, reporter at Axios. Colleges, to me, has been a really interesting part of all the coronavirus effect because it's kind of the first example of the longer-term effects that this lockdown and this pandemic are going to have. I mean, the a fall online is going to affect freshmen entering now up until the four years from now when they graduate. And, and like you said, Colleges are very concerned right now. They they don't have to make a decision yet, but you know by mid June they're going to have to decide. There, there's multi million dollar contracts with vendors for dorms for dining halls that they need to work out. And right now it's not clear that you know any college will be able to open in the fall. And for for a lot of college students that are that are deciding where they're going, that's a big that's a big part of it. I mean, I spoke to several college students for the story. And lots are telling me if it's going to be online classes in the fall, I'd rather just take the whole year off and, and go next year. Yeah, that's the big one. I, for, I just want to go back to what you said. A lot of colleges are waiting till about mid-June to make some final decisions there. There's models and predictions that are saying that some states shouldn't even open until about June 8th. I, I think Georgia was one of those states that was rolled into that because they're reopening some stuff this week. So if they have to wait all the way up until the states are barely going to be opening, it, it's so tough to make those decisions. Is it even worth it to pay for a style of learning that was not advertised? Students uh, are thinking they're going to go to college, have that college experience, learn one-on-one with professors, and it's just not the same on Zoom classes or or online classes. Absolutely. And and the interesting thing is this is all coming for colleges at the exact worst time. I mean, there's been, we've all seen it, an ongoing debate for the past decade or so as as tuition is rising and student debt is rising about is college even worth it? 
has higher education gotten so expensive that it's not worth, you know, sinking into that much debt for it. And now students are staring down the possibility of paying as much for, you know, a fraction of the resources. So it's definitely going to accelerate that debate. And there's going to be, I mean, you know, some colleges have said BU, for example, floated the idea of potentially delaying until January, and some bigger colleges can do that. But most universities in the U.S. are going to need to have some kind of fall semester that they charge for to even stay open. So it's a huge question that college presidents all over the country are staring at the ceiling about right now. Diane Klein, a law professor at the University of Laverne in California, she actually said not what you want to hear, that some students should take a year off and start in 2021 if they can because of all these things, you know, the expense. People don't want to go into debt over uh, paying for school, especially when it's not, you know, what they were originally buying in for. That's crazy to hear that from a law professor saying, hey, take a year off. Absolutely. I think that that's been one of the most striking things for me in reporting the story is just the sheer number of professors in forums and on Facebook groups saying, you know, I, you know, my, my living depends on this, but I'm telling you that it, as, a, as a student, you shouldn't do this. And, and, and you know, this is really, it, it points to an issue of how higher education is financed in this country. But, you know, the point that college, uh, I mean, college freshmen and, and sophomores and, and juniors shouldn't be hurling themselves into kind of a, an incomplete education experience just to prop an institution up. And I think that's the kind of point that these professors are making when they say, just stay home, don't even bother, wait till next year. Let's talk a little bit about the colleges and universities themselves. I mean, they're losing a ton of revenue from not having sports, uh, obviously from not having people pay tuition, um, uh, room and board, all that stuff. They're losing money there. State universities, you know, there's not a lot of money coming in from the government right now. And, and a lot of colleges have already had a lot of people furloughed. They're doing hiring freezes. So even their staff is limited. The eye-popping number for everyone was when the University of Michigan predicted it was going to lose a billion dollars, um, you know, due to the pandemic. And I think that's just, we're just scratching the surface there. I mean, all colleges are going to lose money. You see even the big ones with massive endowments announcing hiring freezes. I think for colleges now, they're going to have to have some kind of a fall semester. The likeliest thing is going to be something online. And it's going to be up to them to figure out how to entice students to, to take part in that experience. It, it goes you know, beyond that, too, because anecdotally, I just hear there's not as much enthusiasm when people are taking online classes. So is that learning experience going to be the same? Are the students going to get as much out of it in that setting? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of kids are, are trying to make that decision right now and just don't have the resources they need because colleges want to wait as long as they can. And and your point about online learning is, is a great one. I mean, if you think about it, this had to happen overnight for K-12 and for college where everyone just got sent home and professors who, you know, maybe were used to not even really checking email that often had to suddenly start using all of these new uh, online learning tools. And colleges are going to have to, this is a longer term thing, they're going to have to put their faculty through extensive trainings to make that online education effective. And you haven't seen many colleges move on that either. And that needs to happen this summer as well. Erica Pandy, reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.